We're in a study that we're talking about. I'm going to invite you to go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to jump around to multiple passages, but in Romans 8 is where we're going to end up in for the bulk of one of the texts. <clears throat> when they were doing the, um, the Golden Gate Bridge, history teaches us that what happened at the time they were building it, in the first few weeks of their building it, they had multiple different tragedies take place. 27 people fell to their deaths in that short period of time. And so then the employees and some of the others started suggesting to the people who were in charge that maybe what they need to do is put safety nets as they were starting to make the expanse. So they stopped the entire project. They put the safety nets. And then the next months and a couple of years it took to finish off, they only had 10 people fall and they were all caught by the net. And they increased production by 20-some percent. Why is that? What would have made a difference by just putting the safety nets? Yeah, right? You know, because sometimes you get so fearful that you create your own, your own imbalance, whatever. And that same thing happens in the spiritual life. We have had over the years that we've been here since 79 and working in this community, we've run into a number of people in this community in particular compared to where we were in central Minnesota. There was another people, number of people in this community who have been taught, exposed to the idea that you can lose your salvation. And as a result of that, they were living in this constant fear and it held them back to a great degree and they were, they were losing confidence. They, as some have told me who have been in our church and we ministered, I, I really don't want to share the gospel because somebody might ask me, are you sure you're saved? And then it's like, well, I'm not sure if I am right now. I hope I am, but I really don't know for sure because maybe I did something that offended the Lord. And so some people struggled with giving out the gospel. Some people struggled with wanting to teach the word of God. They, I've been told this. Uh, you know, why would I want to teach the young people? Because maybe they'll ask me questions about if I'm sure and I'm struggling and I have guilt and, and it just kind of paralyzed them spiritually. Now, why does that happen? That some people doubt. Well, we mentioned already the number one reason that it happens is like in our area, there are churches teaching you can never know for sure you're on your way to heaven. Some even teach that you can lose your salvation. So there's this doctrinal teaching of doubt. Then there's some of us who I did the same thing initially as a, as a child of God. I struggled. Am I still saved? Am I not saved? I remember, I shared with you before, the day I got saved, I was 16 years old. The next day I went out to work in the gas station that my dad had. And when I went out there, I you know, was working and I slipped on the wrench and cracked my knuckles. And right away, I th did what I normally did. I threw the ratchet right through the window. And uh, that I normally didn't do, it, but it bounced off the bench that day. And, um, and I felt like somebody punched me in the stomach. And I thought to myself, I can't be saved. I cussed again. I, I did the same thing I normally do, in anger. And so I struggled. Am I saved? Am I not saved? And that would happen every time when I would sin. Well, maybe I'm, I'm not saved. Maybe God took it back. And so trying to be conscientious and at the same time feeling guilty over my sins and having been taught for years nobody can know. It was a real battle for a period of time until I did this study. And there are some verses that are struggled verse, verses that cause us to struggle that may imply if you interpret them from that point of view, you can see where this doctrine developed that you could lose yourself 
salvation, God might take it away. And we pointed out a number of these verses that even in some of the passages of the parables, they did it. And as soon as I was done, you and somebody else came up and said the same passage. What about the phrase where Jesus says, I haven't lost anybody but the son of perdition? How did he lose Judas? That must clearly imply that you can lose your salvation. Well, we were talking last week. Let's let's do this from a doctrinal point of view. Like you do other Bible topics. Sit down and take what is the clear teaching of the Word of God? What is the preponderance of Scripture? The bulk of Scripture, what does it say very, very, very clearly? You do realize there's a couple verses that people have interpreted that you have to get baptized to be saved. And there are a couple verses that have that hint to it. But what does the preponderance of Scripture say about salvation? Not of works. It's not baptism. Baptism comes after salvation. So you take the preponderance and say, okay, now let me study that verse a little bit more. And it makes sense when you do it from that point of view after you get the preponderance of Scripture. So when it comes to saying, what do lots of verses say? Putting together a lot of these verses, I'm going to summarize them in 12 different, 13 different statements. As far as we get tonight, here we go. We did this last week. The Bible clearly teaches salvation is something done for us, not by us. It doesn't depend upon us. Therefore, you know, God doesn't take it away because he's not giving it based upon our merit, our rewards. We talked about that at length last week. The Bible clearly teaches that when you got saved, you were placed in Christ. It's a phrase that we pointed out, shows up multiple times. Being in Christ puts you in a long-term relationship. He says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. We talked about that at length, that that in Christ doctrine means once you're in Christ, you're there forever. We pointed out number three. The Bible clearly teaches that when you're saved, you become a part of God's family. You become born again. And whosoever believeth on him becomes a child of God. And he becomes our father. As such, parent-child relationships are generally thought, thought of and practiced throughout generations. They're long-term relationships. The fellowships, the activities, the, the conduct between changes as there's growth. And there may be moments where the sweetness is broken, but the relationship is still parent and child. And so our idea that we pointed out is you are God's child, and he says you're my child forever. You're going to stay his child. Now, now he may have to correct you. He may have to withhold some blessings. He may chide you. He may correct you, but you're still his child. So we go on. We said, okay, number four, that the gift of salvation is repeatedly called the gift of eternal life. Eternal life means eternal, forever. Okay, And we were wrapping up last week that if we say eternal life when it comes to salvation doesn't mean forever, then what do you do when it says Jesus is eternal? Does that mean he stops and goes? What about God? What about the, the work of Jesus? It was done once and for all eternally. He gave his one sacrifice to be a forever sacrifice. And so that term eternal indicates you're, you're my salvation doesn't end. It keeps going. And this was right where we paused. God is the one that keeps us saved, not us. And we pointed out several passages that came out about God who keeps us saved from the book of Jude as well as First Peter. We ended up in John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd, and I provide for my sheep. And he makes this comment that I know them, and I give unto them e 
eternal life. And then the next phrase is, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And we pointed out that the gift is eternity, eternal life. That's everlasting. And very strong, they shall never, ever perish. It's an ume. The idea that in the in the original language, not just a singular negative, but a double negative, to give the idea never ever perish is his statement. Then it says that no one can pluck them out of my hand, and so he's making. And then he goes on. He says, "For my Father and I are greater than all." His illustration is very clear, and in fact, he wants us to get it. He repeats it. He says the same thing. He says that no man can pluck them out of my hand. So he's emphasizing it. And so we ended up saying, now, think this through. In order for somebody to take you or me out of God's hand when we're saved, they've got to be bigger or stronger or greater than God. There is nobody. Not Satan, not you, not a church. They can't pluck you out of God's hand once you're in God's hand. And you go into God's hand when you get saved. So you're secured and kept secure by God himself. Then we were making this observation at the very end that we said, God is able to keep you. He is willing to keep you. He's assigned Jesus to keep you. Go back to that John 6 passage. Read it through. And Jesus said, this is my responsibility. And all that the Father gives me, I will not lose them. And I will keep them until I raise them. So the idea is not that somebody can take you away from God, but can God possibly... Hey, do we lose things? Have you, have you lost anything in this past week? Yes, no? Okay. Some of you, some of you younger folk, you don't lose things. Some of us, when we get older, we lose everything. Okay. You know, we can be even doing one of these. Where's the glasses? You know, and still have them on our forehead. Does God ever lose touch with us? The answer is no. Does he ever misplace us? No. No, we're in his hand, we're secured. Let's develop another doctrinal thought. Let's delve into it more, new, new stuff. The Bible clearly teaches that when you become a believer, the day you got born again, the Holy Spirit literally moved within your body. And he serves, since he's in your body, he serves as God's guarantee, God's warranty. So when we're doing projects for, let's say around here, we're going to retile one of the upstairs rooms because it got flooded a few years ago when we had pipes freezing and we never really addressed the problem. So now we're going to address the problem. One of the things that the deacons looked at when they were investigating prices of getting that tile replaced, they wanted to know about the warranty. Okay, what is their, you know, what is this company, what's the, are they going to stand behind the product? The Holy Spirit, if you study the wording, He is God's warranty. God's guarantee to you. He even uses that term in the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's make sure we're all, we all understand what's going on. The Bible says that when in the New Testament era, that when we get saved, the Holy Spirit moves in. This wasn't the case in the Old Testament. When, da- when David sinned and did his, his wicked deeds of uh, adultery and murder, He prayed, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me. Was that possible in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit could come and go? Yes. And that's what the new covenant in uh, in Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, and 33, one of the 
the uh, benefits of the new covenant was that when the Holy Spirit comes to those under the new covenant, he will be with them forever. So Jesus is preaching, and Jesus is speaking, and he is introducing on the night of the Last Supper, he's introducing them to the new covenant. He even said in the communion service, this blood is the testament of this new covenant. This bread is, and we repeat that, that this is indicating a new covenant. And so when he's talking to them, he says, I have future. I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, one like me, divine, eternal, part of the Godhead. And he will abide with you forever. And then he goes on, he says, even the spirit of truth. And not only is he with us forever, which is different than the Old Testament. What else does it say? He dwells with you and shall be in you. Not just upon them for certain occasions. This was going to mark something new. And so what happens in the book of Acts, when we get into that study, probably right after the missions conference... This is the fulfillment of it. Jesus says, if I, go not a, if I go not away, I'm sorry, the typo should be not. If I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. We read in the book of Acts that the first time that the Holy Spirit comes upon them is Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost. And then they develop that idea through the book of Acts, and they say in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 15, this Holy Spirit not only came upon the Jewish believers, but he also came upon the Gentile believers. And so this was all new. This was the Jews were like, whoa, we didn't have this in the past. Now the Holy Spirit is upon them and he's staying with them. He's in forever and also on the Gentiles. Paul then, as time goes by, he says, okay, now let me put this to rest. It's been a debate in the churches because it's been transitional. So when he writes in Corinthians, he makes it clear, what, don't you all know, all of you? Don't you know that your body is the, now the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you? And he says, which you have from God, you're not your own. You've been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. So now he's writing this epistle that's expanding to the church of Corinth and all the other churches and down in generations to us. And he's the, top, the, the thought that he's giving here, and then in 1 Corinthians 12, is the moment you got saved, you didn't know it, but the Holy Spirit moved inside your body. And he's in you, and he's supposed to be in you forever. Okay, keep that in mind. Okay, that the Holy Spirit's in you forever. Now, let me throw something to you that's, that's really important in this. When he says that, he's making that statement at the end of chapter 3. Earlier in chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> he is writing in that part and he says, I could not write unto you as unto spiritual believers, but I am writing unto you as, what does he call those believers in Corinth? Not just babes, he calls them carnal. They are babes, but they're carnal. So he uses the word that, in other words, they're not real godly people. They've got ups and downs going on in their life. But he says he calls them carnal, and yet later in the chapter, what does he say? You, you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is in you. Even though you may not be as spiritual as what, you, you, what I'm praying for, and you have a lot of growth, you've got the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God comes and lives with us when we are first born again. We don't have to wait until we get to a certain point where, okay, now I've arrived. Now I've overcome sin in my life. 
If we're genuinely repentant and believe on Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and stays in us, even if we have some semblance of carnality, babyhood. We're not mature. The Spirit is within us. That's an important truth, but it's a biblical truth that the Spirit is in Every believer who is truly born again, every single one has the Spirit living within them. So, the Spirit comes and lives within us, and as a result, we are, we are given the assurance that because the Spirit is living within me, I cannot lose my salvation. Why not? Let me give you one text, okay, that talks about it. In the, one of the texts where he's talking and he's giving uh, some statements, he makes this comment, if we believe not... He abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. In other words, will God reject us and cast us into hell? Well, no, no, think this through. If I've got born again, who's living within me? Who has God said moved in? The Holy Spirit. If he rejects me, who does he reject? The Holy Spirit himself. That's an impossibility. And so God cannot reject himself. And if you say, well, wait a minute, if you don't live to be really, really, really holy, then you won't have the Holy Spirit. That's not biblical. Even carnal Christians have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in all of us, helping us to grow, and he's there forever, living within us, so God's not going to reject us, because if he does, he rejects himself. Go a little bit further. In Ephesians, talking about the Holy Spirit, in, he says, talking about Jesus earlier, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed, the moment after you believed, what did the Holy Spirit do for you? We highlighted it. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He says, which is our earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Let's just take that first phrase. What does he mean you are sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, let, let's bring it to modern Do you ever seal anything? Yes, no? Do you ever seal food? Why? You're trying to keep it, preserve it. Okay. Okay, you're trying to do this. You're trying to seal. Uh, do you ever put a seal on anything? Do you ever lock up anything? Do you... I don't have it on me. Do you ever seal your phone? Yes, no? You do it with a what? With a password. You seal it off so that it's private. It's kept that only you can get into it or only you can break into it type thing. And he's saying the Holy Spirit sealed you. So we think, okay, now what exactly did that mean in Bible days? In Bible days, when they sealed, there was different ways of sealing. You could use your ring to make a seal. Uh, how did they do that? Do you remember? They would pour wax on an envelope, and then they would put the, the ring into it, and that would keep the letter shut, guaranteed that it was shut until it arrived at some place. Do you, can you think of a, 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 any items that they might have sealed? It happened when Jesus died. The tomb. They sealed the tomb so as to make sure that nobody would break into it, whatever. Okay, so this sealing typically showed this. It would show ownership. Sometimes you would seal things, you would mark it with your name or your seal. Okay, um, does that ever happen today? Do you ever mark things with, that's, it's yours? Okay, I, I have one of the thumb drives that float around the church building. I've taken the white out and I put WAB so that if any of you ever find it laying around, you know whose it is. It's mine. 
Okay, that's my morning sermon. So if you want me to preach short, you take it and never give it back to me. Okay, so then we can't do my notes. So we, we mark items. You probably marked books. You've marked equipment, things like that. So ownership, it was also to secure from tampering. Sealing also meant or gave authority. If something came with my seal on it or your seal and you were in charge, that would indicate, okay, authority speaking here. So you could put that as your signature. Not just seal the letter, but you could sign it that way and then they would know that the authority comes. So thinking that through, when the Holy Spirit seals us, it happens when we got saved. When we believe, that's what he mentioned in Ephesians 4. And then when we got sealed, it was not done by us, it's done by God. You were sealed by somebody else, by God. The sealing is God himself sealing you with his spirit. This is very personal. God is very big on this. He's marking you as his with his own spirit. And the sealing indicates we are his. It makes us secure. One of the other benefits of sealing means contamination, corruption can't come in. That that answers this question. Can a believer be demon-possessed? No. No. Can a demon enter into you in any way, shape, or form? No, because you are sealed by the Spirit. Okay? So this sealing says that we are sealed with the spirit of promise until the day of redemption. The idea is that we receive this sealing as part of the promise of our inheritance. And we go a little bit further. To lose salvation means someone or something can negate the work of the Holy Spirit as the promise from God. Who can do that? Okay? It can't be done. It can't be done. Can a church undo the work of the Holy Spirit? Can a preacher? No. Can a parent? Can a child? No. No. Let's take a little bit further. Watch what he does with this verse. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the, and I don't know what you have in your Bible, but you may want to mark it, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Earnest is a really important word. The word that's used there in the original Greek is the word erabon. That is a word that has the idea of guarantee or warranty. Let me see if I can bring it into modern, modern world. Not only is the Holy Spirit God's promise, it is God's pledge, God's guarantee to us, and he's living within you. So the Erebon was used, uh, the, word, the word could be today, if you were buy, selling something, okay, uh, or you were buying something, let's do that, so let's say you're buying a house, you put down what's called earnest money. What does earnest money do? What does that indicate to the people who are, who are, you guys are talking about moving. I'm announcing this to everybody. So you pray for them as they do this in the Lord's will. I don't want to tease you in a bad way. So they're moving. They're looking at relocating. And with that, you're going to uh, do transactions. You're going to need to put earnest money if you haven't already. What does that earnest money mean? Okay, you've committed. You've committed that you're going to follow through with this payment. Yes? Is that what earnest money means? Yeah, absolutely. I'm giving you my pledge. I haven't paid the whole thing, but I'm putting money down that says I'm going to follow through. And if you don't follow through, if you listen to the rest of us saying, don't go, don't go, stay here, okay, then what happens to your earnest? You lose it. Okay. But that's not the intent. 
Because as a man of integrity, that's what you're going to do. You're going to follow through. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment to you. That God has pledged himself to you. That he's given you already something that indicates you're going to get the rest of the salvation benefit. So that's an Erebon. It is your earnest money. It is your pledge. And just as you're going to follow through with your pledge, your word, God, who is even much greater, is going to follow through. He's given you his down payment. That's his Erebon. There's another way that it can be used. It is also used in Bible days as the indication that you've made a pledge to somebody when you made a deal to get married. In getting married, they would have the different sequence of things that the best man would go and make the proposal, and then they would make the arrangement for paying money. When they would pay some money, that money was an Erebon. It was a pledge. And it was as binding in the Jewish culture that in order to break the Erebon, to break the engagement that was sealed with this transaction, what did they have to do in Jewish culture to break an engagement? They had to go through a divorce. Through all that process, it was so binding. And so today, when we talk about an Erebon, what is the typical Erebon or indication that is given between the guy and the gal? The guy and the gal. Okay. What is given between the guy and the gal saying, I want to marry you and this is my plan to marry you? What is typically given? A ring. A ring. An engagement ring. To say, okay, we are now pledged to each other. That's an Erebon. The Erebon is the ring, is the engagement. It is that which is put down. The Holy Spirit is God's pledge that he has given us an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance with his pledge means he's not going to take it back. He's not going to undo it. He knows us already. He knows what we're going to be and what we're going to do. He knows when we're going to fall and when we're... He knew when Peter was going to struggle. And yet he gives us his pledge, I promise I will not lose you. I will follow through with this commitment. I will save you. So the Holy Spirit living within us is fantastic. Now, there's another phrase here. He is the earnest of our inheritance until when? How long does he keep this pledge and the Holy Spirit living up to this? I'm going to keep you until, what's it say? Until the redemption. What's that mean? Till he comes again. Till he comes again. Until we go to him or he comes and gets us. So this is an absolute guarantee. We cannot lose our salvation. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit doesn't do his job. Who's going to cast that doubt on the Holy Spirit? Which one of us is going to say the Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to keep me saved? Now remember, we said that which people have the Holy Spirit have this pledge. Even baby Christians, even Christians who have areas to grow in. So for those who say you can lose your salvation, how do they reconcile these thoughts? How do they reconcile that even carnal Christians have the Holy Spirit living within them who God said he is God's promise, God's guarantee, God's warranty that they will be there. The Holy Spirit lives with even carnal believers. So the presence of the Spirit indicates your salvation is forever and ever. Let me, let me do another one here, okay? We've talked about all of these so far. Let's jump down to, I read number seven, okay, in your notes. The Bible clearly says nothing can separate us from God's saving love. Nothing. 
Nothing ever can, nothing ever will. Is this the song choir singing next weekend? Is that the... In a couple of weeks? Okay, nothing ever can, nothing ever will. When that happens, think about this. Okay, our God is victorious. It's all about that same thought out of that Romans chapter 8. Where, now just, here's several verses. First John, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. In other words, who loved who first? God loved us. Okay, and that's even what he says. We love him because he first loved us. Okay, and then he asked that question in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to Romans chapter 8. Phenomenal, tremendous passage, which in its context is, makes so much sense. Romans 8 is written by a believer. Who was it? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Who's he writing it to? The Church of Rome. Other believers. He is going to use this phrase, we, us. Who's he including in that? Himself and all those that are reading his epistle. So he's written by a believer to believers. And he's going to be writing to them. And he says that the Spirit of God does something for us. Go to Romans 8. This is what we've already talked about. Romans 8. And you jump down to verse 15 to get the context here. He says, For you, uh, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we are able to call out Abba, Father, a closeness, because the Spirit's within us, and we become his child. The Spirit also bears witness with our spirit that we are, what? The children of God. And remember, now you've got the we and the, and the who. And so he's talking about this relationship that we have with God. And so he goes a little bit further, and with this focus on we and you and, and us, he's going to make this comment towards the end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of, God, of Christ? Okay, and in that context, understand what has been going on earlier in the chapter. Earlier in the chapter, Paul has been, the end of chapter 7, he's been, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? He's crying. He's, he's walking through this idea that I struggle in my Christian life. This guy's been saved some 30 years. He's the great apostle. And yet he makes this comment at the end of chapter 7, before he starts that whole thing, he makes the comment, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, verse 24, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? What's he talking about? In those previous verses, he says, the things that I don't want to do, I... I do. I still do. The things that I want to do, I don't do at times. Who's going to get me out of this mess? Oh, praise be to God, because he is victorious, etc., etc. And then he makes that comment, there shall be no condemnation to them are in Christ Jesus. And from there, he continues that thought, the Spirit's within me, the Spirit's within me, the Spirit's guiding, the Holy Spirit's keeping me saved. And then at the end of the chapter, he makes these statements that are just phenomenal, where he says, who shall separate us from the love of God shall tribulation. What's the answer? Distress, persecution, famine, keep it up, nakedness, peril, sword, no, let's jump down to verse 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than hypernike, is the word literally. Hypernike, through him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither, what you got? Death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. 
And so his, his thought is, if I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm weird in understanding it this way. To me, he seems very emphatic. That he's really, he's, try, he's exaggerating every, not exaggerating, he's considering every possibility. There is nothing, excuse me, there is nothing that can separate us from God. That was the cough drop, got stuck. Okay, So he's all-encompassing, emphasizing this idea, nothing. No experience. Nothing that I can do. Nothing you can do to me. Nothing that the government can do. Nothing that the, the pagan leaders can do. Nothing that the Jewish persecutors could do to him. Nothing could separate him. And not only here on this earth, but nothing, in the, nothing anywhere. In the heights or depths, including demonic spirits, the principalities, the powers. None of them could take away your salvation. Nothing. And by the way, who would that include in it? Me. Us. Is there anything I can do? He says, not even anything in the future. You know, nothing in the past. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. That's an important thought. When he talks about that idea, nothing that ever will come, where he, where he refers to that, um, nor things present, nor things to come. Could he be referring to the, the struggles that he has? The things present? What about the things that I might do in the future that would displease God? Nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. It's so emphatic. There's no condition. There's no situation in our past, present, and future. Not even on Judgment Day. And on Judgment Day, what's the enemy going to do? He's going to accuse. If he's present, he does it now anyway. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a wonderful text. Just a tremendous text. So, you know, you think it through. To say that a person can be lost after being saved is to suggest that God's love for us is affected by our love for Him. Okay, think this through a little bit further. Okay, the idea you can lose your salvation is basically saying God's love is conditional, therefore our love for Him must be unconditional. Do you think God's love for you is based upon you? God's love for you is based... Wait a minute. He loved us. Okay, first. Is his love conditional based upon I have to have unconditional love or I could lose my salvation? Ooh. That's, that's a tremendous blemish on God. The idea you can never lose your salvation is basically saying this. God's love is unconditional while our love may fluctuate. God's love never fluctuates. Which one do you want to be at? Which one of those do you think is biblical? Yeah, the last statements here. Okay, that is consistent with Scripture. Then we say, okay, let's, we got time for maybe a couple more. The Bible clearly teaches that once we are believers, even though we struggle with sin, God will not condemn us. God will not condemn us. Okay, here's our passages. He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not, emphatic, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed into life. He doesn't put, shall not come into condemnation unless, there's no unless, there's no exceptions, very emphatic. As well, he that comes to me, what does he say? I will in no way, no wise, again, a very emphatic statement. In no way will I cast out. Now remember why he's saying it that way. 
in the Jewish society amongst the people that he's ministering, could they be cast out of their temple, of their synagogue, of their family? Yes. And so he's talking to people who are living in fear of the religious leaders who had the power to cast them out. By the way, does that happen today? Are there some churches that dominate people by keeping them suppressed with fear that if you don't do what I want, we're going to take away your salvation, we're going to take away your spirituality? Does that happen today? I grew up in a church that way. Unless you do what I, we say, we could at any moment, we could take away the grace you need to get into heaven. And churches do that. So Jesus is talking to people who lived in a society of fear of what could happen to them eternally because of what their churches, their temple religion was doing. And so he says, hey, listen, when you come to me, I will, how do you want to say it now? I will never, ever, ever cast you out. Can you imagine why the crowds loved him in that case? Makes perfect sense to me. So I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he says. So we already talked about Paul's lamenting. Who shall deliver me? And that's where he says, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's the key. You have to be in Christ. And if we're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Okay. This is, we'll stop with this one. The Bible clearly teaches that even backslidden believers are still called believers. Now, here's the thought. If you can lose your salvation, then you are no longer a believer. It's been taken away from you. But you have this repeatedly stated that a believer could still do wrong. Watch the verses, okay? And by let me preface it this way before I put up a verse. Are we saying that because we are secure in God's love, we can go and live any old way we want? No. No. Are we saying, go out and sin. God's got you covered. No. No. If we're genuinely saved, what do we want to do? We want to please God. want to live for God. And if when we have those moments where we stumble, what is God going to do? chastise us and correct us and get us back in line. And if we're truly born again, we're going to become repentant under chastisement. So here we go. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all that in every place have called upon the name of the Lord, would you, from that phrase, would you understand he's writing to believers? Yes? Yeah. That these people have already, they're called to be saints and they've called upon the name of the Lord. Would you grant that that's the case? Okay. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. He still calls them brethren, even though they're not everything they should be. They're still called brothers and sisters in Christ. They aren't called cast-off ones. As well, we read further. He says in Matthew 18, when Jesus is preaching, he says, if your brother offend thee, Okay, what's he saying? Somebody who is spiritually related to you could do something that would offend you. They could stumble you, but they're still a brother. Let's go a little bit further. Okay, if we say that we have no sin, we talked about this a few weeks back. If we who are believers say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. In other words, do we still struggle with sin? That's his point. 
we still struggle. And if we struggle, what's his next thought? If we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us, okay? So we're still believers, okay, that, that we struggle because the next verse, the next phrase is, my little children. Even though we struggle, we are still related one to another. We still have that relationship. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, withdraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly. Is it possible, therefore, that in the city, the church of Thessalonica, there was some believer, a brother, who was doing something wrong? Yes. Do you remember what some of the things they were doing? Some of the people were saying, we are so anxious for the Lord to come back, we are going to stop working. We're going to go up on the hilltop and wait until Jesus comes back. And we're not going to work anymore. And he has to write and he says, hey, wait a minute. If you don't work, you shouldn't. Yeah, that's the context. Believers are doing some things that aren't always right. But they're still believers. He goes on and he says this. I have written unto you, I have written unto you to not keep company if any man that is called a brother, wait a minute. A brother could commit a heinous sin? Could a believer commit a form of adultery? Did David do it? Yeah. Okay. For what have I to do and judge that? And by the way, does that mean he's telling us to go out and do it? No. But he's saying if somebody falls into that sin, he's going to say, okay, then here's what I want you to do. If it's a brother who has sinned like that, break off fellowship with them. For what have I to do to judge them that, that are without? Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about in that phrase? Okay, the unsaved. He's saying that we as a body of Christ, if somebody within our body is doing something heinously wrong, we should challenge them in that area. Matthew 18, go to them first of all, one-on-one, -on -one, then go with somebody else. And if they don't hear us, what might we end up doing? Okay, bring it before the church. If they still don't listen, what do we do? We might have to put them outside the body. Remove their membership. Okay? So we're judging. And in this sense, it would be appropriate for us to judge. He says, we don't judge them that are without. We, we don't discipline. We don't try to correct theirs. Do we not judge them that are within? And the answer is, yes, we have a responsibility. Them that are without... God will judge. Therefore, put away from yourself the wicked one, the person within the body. So, so you want to see how he makes the statement a little bit more dog. Oh, it, you know what? It's, not in a, it's in a different section. We'll just stop right there with this one. Okay. That where he's making comment that it is our responsibility to challenge, to judge within the body. But they're still called a brother or sister. So we have all these different things adding up together. And the bottom line is that when you and I were struggling with whether we are really saved, we struggle. But when we sit down and go over the preponderance of Scripture, we get the assurance that even though we're imperfect and we should keep on growing and keep on growing, I'm still a child of God. I may be an immature one. I may be one that's carnal at times, but I'm still God's child and he's still keeping me and he's going to correct me. And he's going to chase me. And he's going to use other people to help me to do what's right. But I'm still his child. Aren't you glad 
that your salvation doesn't demand you living a perfectly sinless life. Otherwise, if that were the, that were the requirement, what does that mean? We never make it. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for your work of keeping us saved. Thank you for these truths of encouragement, but also challenge. Help us not to become lackadaisical. Help us not to become irresponsible. Help us to become appreciative children that want to serve you even better because of your goodness and your grace. Continue in this study to work in our hearts. Give us wisdom so we can help others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here this evening. We'll pick up with this next week. Thanks.